Well, Jesus faced relentless opposition from people who should have worshipped him. We often don't think about that too often, but he faced relentless opposition. Not just from people who didn't know him or understand him, but people who should have really grasped who he was. He, he had been ministering, in our case, uh, in the passage's case, he had been ministering outside of what was known as Jewish territory for a little bit of time, and there he had done amazing things and became more widely known, and he began keen in his disciples and those who were following him on, on exactly the expanse or the, the purpose of his mission and going out to people and preaching and teaching. But, but as soon as Jesus then returned temporarily back into, you could say, Israel's territory, Matthew shows that opposition from Jewish people reappears in Jesus' own midst. Look at verse 1 of Matthew chapter 16. It, it says there, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came and they tested him, and they asked him a question. Now, the Pharisees and, and Sadducees, uh, you can go ahead. Maybe, I don't know if you're accustomed to like marking with pencil in your Bible or pen or whatever. Whenever I see Pharisees, I, I add a plus sign, or I just mark down a plus sign. And then when I see Sadducees, I, I mark down a, a negative sign or a minus sign, a hyphen. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But these Pharisees and Sadducees, you need to know that these are on their own very uh, they are rival groups of people. They are rival leaders. So this is odd whenever they appear together and they're facing Jesus, because these are people who would never be on the same side of anything. But here they're operating together. They're united because of their opposition to Jesus. In pursuing Jesus or in persecuting Christ, they have a common cause. Uh, they think that the enemy of their enemy is their friend, so they're acting as an unholy alliance, you could say. Yet, how often we see the same thing in our own present day. People who are opposed to who Jesus is, they often come together and war against Christ's good name. Uh, men of the most opposite opinions and habits will agree on the disliking of the gospel and will work together to oppose its progress. And there's nothing new here for us when we approach this text. But I think it'll help us to notice the, the regularity of the gospel's opposition, or the regularity of opposition towards the person of Christ. It, it helps set the so, tone for this passage altogether. And you see in a particular verse later, gaze at verse 4, you'll, we'll go to it a little bit, where Jesus actually calls a group who are opposed to him and his gospel as evil and adulterous. You know, this is, this is not starting the conversation off very well. This is not something you would bring up at a dinner party, but their opposition to him actually had him call back to them saying, you are an evil and adulterous group of people. Why is he calling them that? And before answering that, I just want you to notice that this is something that he has said before. Back in our same gospel account, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, he called people that were wanting the same thing, the same thing that he called these people. They were disingenuous in their question. They hoped to show that Jesus would be a fool. They're trying to trip him up or expose him as something that they believed he was, not the Messiah, but he would then expose himself yet again to them as the Messiah who they had been lying about. This repetition may seem trifling. To you, But anytime the, the gospel accounts repeat something about Jesus or repeats or has Jesus repeating himself to a different group of people, we ought to take note of this. This repetition actually shows us that our Lord was in the habit of saying some of the same things over and over again. 
He wasn't content with saying something once and then moving on. It was, it was evident that he would preach certain truths again and again for the sake of his disciples to know who he was. They were spiritually weak and forgetful people. Does it remind you of, of any of us that we are always in needing to be reminded of just who Jesus is, just what he has said he would do, just of what he has said he would accomplish? And this should help us all, I think, know better that that every word of the Lord and God's word is precious and very helpful to us. But also, I think, uh, maybe, maybe you've ever heard your dad when you were younger say, don't make me say this twice. Or maybe your mom say, don't make me repeat myself. You, you knew that that kind of set the tone for your obedience to whatever their command was. Well, in the same way, Jesus here says something in repeated fashion. And even within this text, he repeats himself again and again to the very disciples who he was trying to teach. So for us today, this passage should serve not as an examination, not just as an examination of faith, but also it serves as a warning for us. Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees and Sadducees should warn us. Jesus' regular repetition to his disciples should warn us because he ought not to repeat himself, but we need to take note of when he does. He was painfully aware of the false doctrines that were attacking him. And then in the second part of our passage, he is painfully aware of the false doctrines that are attacking his own disciples. And he is warning people of what to do in those circumstances. Much like the rest of us today, we are, we are constantly fending off false truth from coming into the church, into our own hearts. So we should take very good uh, awareness of what he is telling us. One One of these attacks was verbalized by Pharisees and Sadducees at the person of Jesus. Another was just an ongoing influence that the Pharisees and Sadducees had within their teaching. These people were marked culturally. You think of the the disciples. They were marked culturally by how they had been taught for decades at this point. And Jesus is, is trying to strip them of those false teachings on a regular basis. Now, last week, you saw the repetition of the miracle of the healing of people from from everything that they came with. And then a miracle of Jesus feeding 4,000 people, just after feeding 5,000 people in a couple of days before that. And hopefully, you understood the spiritual significance that was being exposed by Jesus of, what do you think can happen to your heart if I can do all of these physical healings to these other people? What do you think I can be to you? after showing that I have provided for thousands of people who came from afar. Now, today I want us to focus our hearts on these 12 verses of Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus rebukes people and warns others of their pernicious influence of false doctrine from false teachers. It's here that he'll tell us or give us another lesson on what faith is. He's given us another picture, another glimpse, if you will, on what faith looks like by pointing out what faith is not. So Jesus and his disciples have arrived back on the western shore of Galilee. You can imagine them going far into the land, and now they're returning back. If you're just kind of looking at a map, understanding the setting or the significance of this passage, they have moved back into the region, which is highly more Jewish, coming back to where they came from. And and as soon as they arrived, it was the Pharisees and Sadducees who were waiting to see if they could hatch some kind of plot to embarrass Jesus. So there are two crowds being addressed here. You've got two points on your outline. There's, there's one crowd, which are the Pharisees and Sadducees, where Jesus is speaking directly to them. And then the crowd in the second part are Jesus' disciples on a boat going into the sea. 
He basically hears what people are saying, and he says, no, you're wrong. That's why the first point in the outline is, you're wrong. It didn't mean you personally, but that's Jesus is speaking to people who are speaking to him and saying, you're wrong. And then as they disappear, you could almost say, and go into and are traveling elsewhere, he's looking now at his disciples, pointing back to the Pharisees and Sadducees, saying, they're wrong. And look how much it's influencing your own life. So, and then he ventures out and continues to teach his people. And so we should take a great notice of what he says. He is direct here, first of all. He is saying no to those who are speaking to him, trying to trip him up. He's saying, no, you're wrong. Look at verses one through four. Gaze your eyes at the text there. Here, you see Jesus rebuking them. But how does he do so? He rebukes, or how does he rebuke them? What is he rebuking about them? They ask him a question. Every question deserves to be answered, right? But what does he do as he rebukes them? He is rebuking their unbelief. He's rebuking their unbelief in their hearts. They don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They mockingly ask for another miraculous sign from him. They they weren't genuine about this. They were mocking him. Their hearts were so hard, and here lies this important truth, that the heart of man is the greatest barrier to his own faith. What kept these men from coming to Christ in repentance? What kept these men from, instead of mocking Jesus through through a question, what kept them from worshiping him? Well, nothing but the hardness of their heart. I think it's fascinating. I think you'll notice more and more that that Matthew gives us this tense, insightful picture of unbelief through the lenses of the Pharisees and Sadducees' opposition to Christ. You you couldn't get two different brothers together, these Pharisees and Sadducees, yet Matthew has them combined as they approach Jesus, and we see Jesus rebuking their unbelief. Now, I need to tell you a little bit of background about the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees, this is why I asked you, you can put a plus sign by their name. Uh, The Pharisees, they were very popular. They're very popular people. Uh, They were what you could almost call a holiness movement. Uh, They wanted spiritual revival in their land. They wanted God's blessing to rain down once again on the nation of Israel. They believed that this would happen through strict and precise obedience to the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, through strict obedience to the law given to Moses, all those ceremonial and municipal uh, laws, but also, and here's where it gets tricky, so it's good for people to want to obey the word of the Lord. It's good for people to want to take a heavy notice of what God gave Moses, but here's where it gets a little tricky. They also wanted strict obedience through the oral tradition of the rabbis. If everyone would just follow the rabbi's rules, then God would bless his people again. So faith to them were actually additions to the actual gospel. That's why I have that plus sign there. Uh, they, the, that's what the Pharisees were like. They, were adding, they wanted to add things on. Now, they wanted this for a good reason. They wanted the Lord to bless them. So they kept wanting to make more rules for people. And they lorded over these rules of other people saying, we're never going to grow as Enid if you people don't start doing this or you stop doing that. Now, the Sadducees are totally different. You can put a negative next to their name or a hyphen or a a dash next to their name. They weren't so popular, but they were very connected to power. So these were the people on the up and in in society. They were highly spiritually influenced by Greco-Roman culture. Uh, You look at a pagan culture, you look at them, and you kind of see the same thing. And they attempted to blend their Judaism, both religious and culturally, with the culture components of the Greco-Roman world. So they they just... frankly, looked like society. Faith to them, what they were going for was acceptance. They were were wanting 
wanting to add on the culture's influence into their own lives. So Pharisees sought a heavenly kingdom to be sure through formalism, ceremonialism, and legalism where they were adding things to the faith. The Sadducees were more worldly in love. They believed their reward for obeying God's law would show itself in material prosperity or material power. Uh, So in, in many ways, they were subtracting from the faith. Now, jointly, Jesus uses their anger towards him to instruct us on what faith looks like. Look at, look, at what, look at what they do and what he says. Look at verse 1. They say, show us a sign from heaven. They demand that he do another miracle. They wanted something spectacular, not something that can be duplicated. For a long time now, people have been trying to duplicate what Jesus was doing for their own sake. They were also trying to heal people. They were also teaching other things. And in many places that Jesus would go to, people would follow around and try to duplicate what he would do for their own power. These people, they were mocking him saying, show us a sign that can't be duplicated by anyone else. Jesus is showing himself to be the true and better Moses. Great. Maybe you can bring manna down from the sky like Moses did. Jesus was showing himself to be somewhat, somewhat of a true and better Joshua. Wonderful. Pray like Joshua did when the sun stopped. Do something amazing, Jesus. Or people are talking about Jesus like he is Elijah here in front of them. Maybe he can bring down fire just like Elijah. Give us a sign, mockingly, O Messiah. Something that proves that you're the Messiah. We don't believe it, but show us something that'll convince even us. And Matthew tells us their intention. He exposes their heart to us. They came to test Jesus, which is not a good idea for people to do who claim to follow the Torah and the rest of what the Lord says in Deuteronomy when it says emphatically, do not put the Lord to the test. Yet they were doing this because they didn't believe that he was the Lord. Jesus responds to them though, and we have that in verses two through three. Look at that as I read it to you, and Jesus answered them, when it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Here he's given basically the old old method of how to interpret the weather. Now, one one of the things that I do that tremendously annoys Brooke and everyone in my presence, I'll wake up, I'll walk out to the front porch and I'll say, red sky by morning. And she'll say, I know, I know sailor, sailor take warning. And I'm like, I'd be a really good sailor. And she's like, everyone knows that. Or when it's at night, red sky by night, sailor's delight. And she's like, please stop. You're not a weatherman. No one, no one cares what you have to say. And I, I learned it from my dad and I'll teach it to our kids and I'll ruin everyone's day. But here, what Jesus is doing is taking something that was so commonly known and understood and says, you get that yet you are missing the thing that is right in front of you. He basically says that they'd make better weathermen than spiritual leaders, yet they were spiritual leaders. And he's saying that they do not know what they're talking about. If they read the scriptures like they can read the weather, they'd recognize easily that all the things in the world are clearly pointing to him and that his work is messianic. He mocks them as they have mocked him. He mocks them, saying that they're great at noticing the natural signs in the sky, but are clueless about the spiritual sign that is right in front of them. Now, to a banker, it would be a rebuke to say that he doesn't know anything about money. To a math teacher, it would be a rebuke to say that she or he doesn't know anything about numbers. And to these people here, to these spiritual leaders, he says that they don't know anything about what the Torah, what the Old Testament scriptures actually say because he is the fulfillment of all those things. 
as religious leaders, they, more than anyone else, should know that God has visited his people, sent the long-expected Messiah that was predicted about. But a wicked generation cannot read the signs. Their spiritual blindness keeps them from seeing Jesus. As long as they refuse to see Jesus, they remain blind. But look at verse 4. He continues on with his rebuke and actually gives them a warning. Look at verse 4 where it says, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Here Jesus compares himself to the person of Jonah. Jonah, you remember the story of Jonah and the fish. Jonah did not perform signs. Jonah was the sign for the people to wake up and repent to the Lord. He was the sign. He was thrown overboard into a raging sea. He was swallowed by a great fish. He was spat out on dry ground and then preaching so great of an effect that the very life of Jonah was proving to be a sign because people responded in faith and repentance to this Jewish prophet who showed up in a hostile city that God is who he says he was and man needs to respond to God's glory and his power. And what Jesus is saying, so too with me, but a little bit deeper. These leaders did not need signs by Jesus. They needed to see Jesus for who he was, his presence, his life. This is God's greatest sign to us of who we are and what we need, the very person of Jesus arriving in front of them. Jesus was calling them to remember Jonah, but he was, in a way, actually pointing them forward to where he would do for man what Jonah could not. Jonah was sent to preach, and Jesus went there and preached, And the sign of Jonah, of course, refers to Jesus' own death and his resurrection on the third day. This is the second time that Jesus has brought up the person of Jonah in the midst of unbelievers saying, see what physically happened there and recognize what will be done to me for the sake of your own souls. Going back to the experience of the prophet where he was swallowed up by a fish and emerged on the third day, so also Jesus would be raised from the dead. And so the sign of Jonah, it was, that they should receive, and now is the sign of Jesus that they must respond to. Jesus' resurrection at the very heart, is the very heart of the gospel proof that he was the Messiah. They want something so outrageous that they would finally believe. And what does he say? I'm going to do something that is totally unbelievable. And you got to know in, in this midst that half of them actually don't believe in resurrection at all. Some of them do believe that people are raised from the dead, but half of this group is saying there's no way that anyone can be raised from the dead. And as a double rebuke, Jesus said, it is happening and it will happen in my life. The Pharisees were devoted from this day forward to making sure, though, that Jesus would be killed. And isn't it an interesting sign to give both the Sadducees and the Pharisees this kind of uh, tempting prophecy? The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, yet it was the sign that Jesus was going to give them was the sign of his power over death, his power over the resurrection. The theologian William Hendrickson says, what a sign this death and resurrection would be for Pharisees who were concerned, who were constantly planning Jesus' death, that no fear that he would ever be able to conquer death. And what a sign it was for the Sadducees, who did not even believe in a resurrection, that that would be a sign given to them that he was indeed the Messiah. They wanted a sign, and he says, it's coming next, and it will cost me my life. Now, there are a lot of things to be taken away from these couple of verses, just these four verses of this passage, where Jesus is rebuking them, saying, you're wrong. But I I hope, if anything, you'll notice again that it was not heavenly evidence that keeps these people from believing Jesus as the Messiah. 
They didn't need more proof that he was who he was. They didn't need more data points. They didn't need more evidence. The signs were as bright as the day. The problem was always their heart. It is not the evidence that keeps people from coming to Christ. It is our darkened hearts that keep us from wanting to bow the knee to his lordship. I think in in my case, the way that I've been reading this passage, it has been helpful for me and a reminder for me for, for me to pray for other people in their coming to Christ. What is it that I'm asking God to do? I'm asking God to remake their heart or regenerate their heart or refashion or wake them up. Friends, oftentimes we, we want to, I, I heard someone say in this church a couple years ago, you've heard of helicopter parents, you know, we're just hovering over their kids. There's also, this person said, there are lawnmower parents, which is quite a way to describe mom and dad, lawnmower parents. They just want to get everything out of the way of their kid. We very often want, want to put painstakingly sure that we remove every ounce of, of evidence that we can that would deter someone from the faith rather than just going to the Lord for their heart altogether. It is amazing. It is amazing what God does in bringing people to himself. These people didn't need another sign. They needed a new heart. And what unbelief looks like is distrusting what God gives us. What unbelief looks like is distrusting what God gives us. You're reminded of the verse that said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, needing the reminder of who God is. God gives us Christ, and we can be assured of Christ by what God has also given us about Christ in his word. These people should have been well-versed in the scriptures in such a way that they would have seen Jesus and go, that is him. You are the Messiah. But they wanted fire from the sky. Yet we can be assured of who Jesus is by what God has also given us in his word about him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees claimed they needed signs beyond what the word was pointing out to them. And so friends, an easy takeaway from this is what has God given us in the person of Christ and how much do we truly trust him? And this will be asked to the disciples here in a little bit. What true faith looks like is believing in the Messiah according to the scriptures. And frankly, you and I can convince ourselves that anything out there is our Savior. You and I are very good, uh, you know, negatively you call it idols, but what we positively might call it is I've convinced myself that something out there will help me or will save me until we actually place whatever that is beside absolute truth. You can make your body your answer to your problems. You can make your bank account your answer to your problems. You can make your identity your answer to your issue. We see this going on all the time in our days, and, and I know that it happens even within our own hearts. We, we set our affections on something thinking that it will make us happier. Anything that is the object of our hope and joy, but it is unearthed as fool's gold when it is scrutinized through the absolute truth that God has given us in our word. What were the Pharisees and Sadducees placing their hope in? Collective obedience and moral acceptance. And what was Jesus rebuking them by saying, you are looking everywhere for help but me, and you're mocking me in the meantime. Jesus says to them that they are wrong. They seek for something, but what he will give his people is the sign of Jonah, meaning he will give people himself. Man will be reconciled to a wrathful God as the wrath of God is poured out on the Son of Man through a crucifixion, a burial, and then a resurrection on the third day. So Jesus says, don't try. You're wrong. And then he's about to say to his disciples, stop listening to them. This is where he says, secondly, that they're wrong. He's looking at his disciples, pointing out that the Pharisees and Sadducees are wrong. And he is, he is precise 
in what he says here. He is precise in how he is discipling those who follow after them. If he was direct towards the Pharisees and Sadducees, he is precise to the soul of what it means to follow what we are set to follow. Now, the setting changes here between verses 4 and 5 of your own text. You probably have a paragraph break. I have a paragraph break in mind. The setting here changes. The character emphasis also changes too. He was speaking to a new group, and now he's exclusively speaking to his disciples. Look at verses 5 through 7 of this passage. You'll see here an exchange between Jesus and his disciples. He issues a warning to them about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but they misunderstand that warning that Jesus gives them in verses 5 and 7. So there Christ charges us as believers to take care in who we follow. Jesus warns us to be careful about the spiritual leaders that we choose to follow. Jesus and the disciples are now going to return to the east or the northeast side of the lake, but the disciples here we see in our passage have forgotten bread. Now, friends, sometimes you just have to laugh at what all is unfolding before us. They were just given so much food, and I don't know, a day before, and now they go on a new venture, and what do they do? They forget food. Like, I I have written in my Bible, LOL, explanation point, because you just kind of have to go, guys, you should have a couple of things going for you. One of them is a short-term memory, but they forget it. And so they ask him, what do we do? And in this context, Jesus gives them a warning, not just about what is physically there, but he gives them a warning about what is spiritually being unearthed from their need of who he is. And so in this context, Jesus gives them a warning, and a warning he uses through the extent of using the imagery of leaven and unleavened bread. He is using that term in a metaphorical sense, but they take him literally. So he responds, and they take it literally, and he's like, no, I don't mean it literally, I mean it metaphorically. Are you not seeing the bigger issue that I'm talking about? They think that he's rebuking them for not having gotten enough bread for the journey. So let's look at the significance of this exchange. Jesus still had on his mind this recent engagement with the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he has in view giving his disciples a warning against the teaching and the spiritual character of the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were venerated. Perhaps the Pharisees would have been a party to what had been the most popular amongst the people from whom the disciples would have even been drawn. Matthew tells us explicitly that the disciples had great regard for the Pharisees. And you remember on a couple of occasions that the disciples have come to Jesus and have said, Lord, don't you realize that you've offended the Pharisees? They're, they're basically saying, we still, we still like them. I, we know that we're following you instead of them, but we still like them. Can you kind of play it cool for a little bit? You seem to be rebuking people that I'm related to. And we've all done this a little bit, right? We've been inspired by people or influenced by people. And then someone might attack that person. We're like, you know, they're not that bad, right? We do that all the time, don't we? But here Jesus is doing, or Jesus is telling them, the mere influence that they have over your lives is not good for your soul's satisfaction, Matthew tells us explicitly here what Jesus is intending to tell all of us. Clearly, that something uh, was bothering the disciples because they had grown up on rabbinical teaching. They had respected greatly the holiness movement that was started by these Pharisees. And it was hard for them to take in what Jesus was saying, that these men are leading the nation to its doom. Stop following them. And so Jesus is saying, be careful about the leaven of the teaching and the character of the Pharisees. Though they have an outward form of piety, they have whitewashed tombs, he said about them earlier. They will lead you to doom and to destruction. And though they teach many things that are true, yet this truth is mixed with error. So you got to throw out the whole bunch. And Jesus 
uh, he uses this image of leaven. And it gets in there, it, and it leavens the whole bunch. So the idea of leaven indicates the subtle nature of the false teaching of the Sadducees and Pharisees. It was, it was mixed with truth. It was disguised with outward piety. It was attractive when you heard about it. And Jesus is saying, be careful about that teaching. Now, written in 1652 uh, by Thomas Brooks, he writes a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Uh, He actually has in there several things to to look out for, seven marks of a false prophet. I read it last week just to make sure I wasn't or attempted to be. Uh, It's a a great book. I would commend it to you. Uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Happy to lend you my copy. And it's in that section where he's talking about uh, seven marks of the false prophets in that section that he gives character qualities of those who are leading people away from the truth. It is, it is very important that all of us understand that false things written alongside truth things means that we need to discount all of the things that that's being presented to us. He is saying that you are so influenced by these bad actors that you need to look beyond them and move beyond them. Now, I want you to note that Jesus insists that the disciples, even his disciples, must be discriminating about who they follow or who they admire, who they emulate. And the same call is for us as well. If Jesus warns his disciples, the the men upon whom he is going to found this worldwide mission, if he warns his disciples to be careful about who they listen to and who they admire and who they follow, how much more ought we to be on guard about those we listen to or those we learn from or those doctrines that we take in that are false? Jesus continues, though. I want you to gaze at verses 8 through 10, where Jesus lectures his disciples for misunderstanding what he is saying. He tells them that the reason that they have misunderstood what he has said is because of their lack of faith. That's the amazing thing. They've they've misunderstood Jesus because of their lack of faith, which brings or calls the question, what does it mean to have a lack of faith here? He reminds the disciples that he can do anything. And he can provide for everything that they need. He reminds them of the miraculous feedings that he's done. He, he reminds them of the 4,000. He reminds them of the 5,000. And he says, don't you remember these things? That's what it looks like to have faith in Christ, is to remember who he is, to recall who he is continually, so that we would be motivated and press on that, oh, we don't have bread, but I know I'm with the one who can make anything out of nothing. And so by that phrase, you men of little faith, he is putting his finger on the source of their misunderstanding. The Pharisees' unbelief had blinded them to the clear signs that Christ had given, that he was the Messiah. But the disciples' weak faith had blinded them to the meaning of his statement, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They thought that he was rebuking them for not bringing bread or Maybe they thought he was saying, okay, now that we've forgotten bread, at least don't go buy them from the Pharisees and Sadducees. But no, Jesus is saying that they have missed the point completely. The reason that they've missed the point completely is that they don't believe that he is able to provide for them completely. So they have weak faith. They're worrying about the temporal provision. And he's saying, I'm going to take the place of you in a way that is just like I have in the past. I'm going to take care of you in a way that is just like I have in the past. I'm concerned about you spiritually. And so he repeats that saying in verses 11 and 12 in the text. He reiterates that most important warning to them. He reminds us again and them that Christians must avoid false teaching like the plague. Because when we are caught up in false teaching, even, even as it might feel close to the truth of Scripture, we are throwing out the whole bunch. 
They're worrying about the temporal provision. He's saying, I'm going to take care of you. And by repetition, by his emphasis and his re-emphasis, Jesus manages to get through to the disciples the main point. The teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees is wicked. When you, when you add things to God's truth, it is wicked. When you take things away from God's truth, it is wicked. It is not just that they're a bad teacher or, well, they tried hard. He is saying it is wicked. And it is an evil generation that is doing this. And much could be said for us today. Jesus says to his disciples, you be careful to listen only to those who are teaching the authoritative word of God. Be careful to only hear from God's voice. They don't take away from it. They don't add to it. And he's warning his disciples against the kind of errors that the Pharisees and Sadducees are doing. They added and they subtracted. The Pharisees, they added through their precisionism. They tended to undercut the law completely by adding traditions of men. Whereas the Sadducees had so mixed up the truth with their culture through what's called syncretism uh, that they had uh, so Im- they'd been so impacted by rationalism that they had denied and taken away all of these certain truths from the faith. And Jesus says, not only to the disciples, but also, he says through his words, you and I today, that as believers, we must take care not to dabble in unsound spiritual teaching. It has adversarial spiritual con- consequences. One of the most repeated things I do with people is just ask them, why do you keep reading that book? Why do you keep listening to those people? Why do you, you know better than that? And they're like, well, I've always liked it or whatever. G. Campbell Morgan once said, unbelief is not a failure in intellectual apprehension, but it is disobedient to the clear commands of God. God has said to his people, trust me, believe me, come to me. And these people were rebuking him. And that's what Jesus is warning his disciples to do, not to drink in by listening to these respected men, those who were leading Israel to their destruction. And that message is not just as, or that message is just as important for us in our day and age, where Christianity is constantly surrounded by and penetrated by those who no longer want to embrace the great apostolic truths of the faith. And so the call for this, from this text to us is to hold fast, even in times of unbelief, to focus our affection on the one who brings us all joy, to, to regularly remind ourselves of what is true and what is right and what is pure. And in these people, people's faces was the one standing there who was absolutely those things. And in our case, we are in the presence of God and his goodness. We have Christ in our hearts that has been applied to us by his spirit, and it is worthy of all of our affection to be filled with joy. Think of this, to be filled with joy by remembering all of who he is. In a moment, we're going to sing about the firm foundation that Jesus is. And as we do that, Allow that song to remind your own hearts that when we have our trust in Christ as our Savior and as our sustainer, it is a foundation unlike anything else. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to you because of your truth. We thank you that we can come to you because you have come to us. Oh Lord, we marvel in the reality that you sent your Son to show us exactly who we can place our trust in. Lord, we pray that as we call out to you and live our lives, that you would stir up within us affections that does not grow weary, but keeping our attention on who you are. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.